Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. I want to welcome you to this virtual, uh, first virtual public lecture in the OHC's annual named lecture series. Before I introduce this year's series and tonight's speaker, I'll provide a territorial acknowledgement. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the land we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally recognized indigenous nations of Oregon, the, per the Burns Paiute tribe, the Confederated Tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua and Siuslaw Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ron, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian Tribe, the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians, and the Klamath Tribes. We express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well as to other displaced indigenous people who call Oregon home. The Oregon Humanities Center's theme for 2021-22 is Imagining Futures. The series seeks to re-examine some of today's pivotal social and cultural issues in order to envision a more just and sustainable future for all of us. As with all OHC-themed lectures, this, this year's seek to create space for experts to share their research and knowledge and to foster conversation and understanding. Our speakers will help us to reimagine our futures around sustainable planning, climate change, indigenous sovereignty, and racial justice. We'll have time for Q&A at the end of the talk. If you have questions at that point, please type your questions into the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We have also en enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I also need to give my customary thanks. First, thanks as always to the OHC's incomparable staff, our Associate Director, Gina Turner, our Program Coordinator, M Melissa Gustafson, our Communications Coordinator, Peg Gerhardt. Second, many thanks to the OHC's generous donors without whom we could not support the kind of innovative humanities research, teaching, and public programming that we do. And thanks finally to all of you for joining us tonight. I'm delighted now to introduce our speaker, Christina Roseanne, Associate Professor of Geography and Urban Studies at Temple University, where she's also an affiliated faculty member in Global Studies, the Master of Public Policy Program, Latin American Studies, and the Center for Sustainable Communities. Professor Roseanne will deliver the 21-22 Criticos Lecture. Established in 1993 through a gift from two of the OHC's generous Portland patrons, the Criticos Professorship brings to the university and the state of Oregon distinguished scholars, critics, and leaders. From the Greek Criticos, translated roughly as able to judge, evaluate, and criticize. As the term suggests, the Criticos Professorship was created to foster the education of U.S. students and faculty and to promote intelligent, critical public discourse around our state. 
both our theme of imagining futures, as well as the Criticos professorship's charge, help explain why we selected Christina Roseanne as this year's Criticos professor. Professor Roseanne's work is motivated by the pressing question of how we might make cities more sustainable and just. She's an expert on urban sustainability planning, urban politics, metropolitan governance, urban planning, environmental studies, environmental policy, social justice, vacant land, green infrastructure, and urban agriculture. Roseanne's first book, Governing the Fragmented Metropolis, Planning for Regional Sustainability, examines metropolitan governance and land use planning in Boston, Denver, and Portland, Oregon. Roseanne's second book, Growing a Sustainable City, The Question of Urban Agriculture, co-authored with Hamel Purcell, was published in 2017. Roseanne's forthcoming book, Reimagining Sustainable Cities, Strategies for Designing Greener, Healthier, More Equitable Communities, is co-authored with Stephen Wheeler and will be published by the University of California Press in December 2021. Tonight, Professor Roseanne will speak to us on the formidable topic of reimagining cities to be sustainable, healthy, resilient, green, and equitable. Please join me in welcoming Christina Roseanne. It's great to have you. Great. Thank you so much for the invitation. And it's a real honor to be this year's um, lecturer, especially with the topic of imagining futures. I think it's so timely. So I was really happy to be invited. And you, I, I'm sad that I was not able to come out to Oregon and meet everyone in person, but I hope there's a future for that. Um, let me just share my screen here. Let's see. Okay. Um, so, um, <laughs> thank you, Melissa, for the thumbs up. Um, this is uh, the book that is coming out with Stephen Wheeler, and I have one of the uh, early copies of it, and we're really excited about it. It's a book that um, Stephen and I initially met at the um, Planning Association Conference, and he and I had both been giving these talks again and again about uh, sort of the failures of sustainability, and we both taught sustainable cities courses. Um, he is at Davis and I, I teach at Temple. And we both felt that there was a real need for books that would kind of dig much more into the weeds about sustainable cities and sort of the history and the value systems um, that, that are, like are underlie the formation of cities. But we also wanted the book to be um, positive and to provide um, kind of a, a way forward because many of our students we had found um, are, have been really depressed. And actually it's sort of depressing even to teach some of this work. Um, so the book sort of straddles the big challenging ideas and, and then also trying to think about um, positive solutions around the world. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to um, sharing it with people. Um, and this talk will cover some of that work and then it will also cover um, a lot of just my previous thinking about this idea of reimagining and sustainability. Um, so I think this question of what would sustainable, resilient, greener, healthier, healthier equitable cities look like is on everybody's mind. And what I wanna argue is that we kind of know what it should look like. 
Um, and the problem is not necessarily imagining what it should be. The problem is figuring out how to get there and, and also understanding what prevents us from getting there. Um, so I think I, I'm gonna lay out for you that we need cities to have clean air, clean water. We need them to be equitable. We need affordable housing. We need sustainable ways to get around the city. We need green space. We mostly also need that to deal with the urban heat island impacts. We need cities to provide equitable access to opportunity. So good schools, um, job opportunities. We need affordable healthcare. We need meaningful work and lives and we need cities to be fun. And that's actually something that Stephen was really pushing on is, you know, cities are places of joy and culture. And that's why we love cities. That's why people travel. The whole tourism industry is built on the idea that cities are amazing places to visit. But we also need a culture of care, which is something that is absent in many cities around the world where you're dealing with, um, you know, many people who, um, experience real oppression in the city and have been excluded um, and are cast aside. Um, cities also need to be places that protect the environment. And this is something that I think is really important. One of the reasons that I really love cities is because I love places that are not cities. And cities have, they concentrate people and resources and they allow us to protect the rural areas and forests. And so the more that we can protect cities, the more that we can protect the rest of the world. Cities, you can reduce your ecological footprint. Um, the per capita carbon is, is lower. So cities, although many people think of them as sort of anti-environmental, I'd like to argue that they are actually a key component of solving the climate crisis. And so we really need to figure out how to get as many people to live comfortably in cities. Um, and that's gonna also be an enormous challenge given that many cities are coastal cities and um, sea level rise and many climate impacts are also gonna be um, changing the geography of where cities are going to be. Um, cities, I also think are very exciting because they allow for inclusion and belonging. Um, there are stories uh, throughout generations of people who really came to cities so that they could be themselves. And we're seeing um, the, you know, we're seeing movements for inclusion and cities are, have always been at the forefront of that. And I think that's actually what also makes them exciting places. Um, but cities do have a lot of challenges. Um, you know, sustainable cities got to figure out how to reduce their um, climate impacts. So reduce CO2 emissions and um, kind of electrify buildings, solar, um, but they need to do that equitably. Um, if in the book, we also talk a lot about creating walkable neighborhoods um, and, you know, that also is good for your health. Um, we need to figure out how to get healthy food for people um, and renewable, affordable energy. And, and one of my um, big pet peeves and the reason that I wrote the initial book, um, Governing the Fragmented Metropolis, is that we really want to reduce sprawl, right? We want 
We do not want neighborhoods that are um, just taking over green space and um, lack the walkability sort of car dependent um, growth. So there's, there's many good ways to do urban development that are sustainable and that do pro provide all these protective services for us. So in many ways, I don't think that that is a surprise that, and we've known for years that cities provide these benefits. Um, but I do think what is the challenge is getting there. And um, many of our cities do, even though we want them to be this, they want them to have all the good stuff, but a lot of them have a lot of bad stuff in them. They're segregated, racist, unaffordable. We're increasingly too hot. They're flooded, uh, polluted. There's some of them are very boring, right? We see the sort of Starbucks of the world um, making everything regularized. Um, you know, they might be unwalkable or they might be congested, unhealthy. So, um, so I think the issue here is we know what's good and we can't get there. And um, a lot of my research is trying to figure out how do we, how do we get there and what's preventing us from that. And, and, and I think part of that, and that's why I really like this idea of reimagining, I think part of that is being frustrated that you can't get there. And so what is it that we need to do um, to, how do we reimagine um, institutions and the way that we live our lives so that we can actually get to this place of the equitable, green, healthy, resilient city that I, that I promised to, to take you to. Um, so in a lot of my work in Philadelphia, um, I've realized that um, when you talk about climate and sustainability um, and you work with communities, you often end up in a very awkward place where community members will say, you know, climate, great, that's really important, but that's not my main issue. I'm, I'm mostly interested right now in sort of my own survival. I'm worried about um, police brutality, um, the illegal dumping, there's um, gun violence, uh, you know, their schools are closed because of asbestos. Um, you have lead in the water, you know, aging infrastructure. Um, and so residents argue that climate is something separate from their immediate needs. And, and what we've begin to, begun to term that is this idea of struggle space. So that the people in the communities, they are so overwhelmed by a history of oppression and injustice that it, it, it and, and also so disenfranchised and excluded from these political processes that they are struggling just to be heard and to get their basic needs taken care of. And, and one of the challenges for the, the sustainability people is that they don't seem to be able to connect to the local lived experience. And this is in part because um, we also are a society where we have excluded people of color from academia and from, um, from the news media. And it's only, um, Recently, I would argue that many white people have begun to see the struggle space and this injustice. And, and what I would like to argue is that 
we can't make any progress on reimagining cities if we don't engage with the struggle space and if we don't think about how uh, how climate investments need to address real people's needs and real people have real reasons to distrust government because government is what gave them this situation to begin with. Um, so I'm, I'll be talking more about that, but I would just wanna frame that initial struggle space for you. Um, here's some kind of images of what, what it looks like to live in the struggle space. Uh, I think of this as a really intersectional approach. Um, so uh, many people in Philadelphia have asthma. Um, there's also um, high rates of cancer. Um, if you live in the suburbs of Philadelphia, you are likely to live a lot longer than if you live in a low-income African-American divested community in Philadelphia. So you are hit again and again um, with, um, with impacts that make your health um, go down um, and the really like you reduce your life expectancy. Um, this is just, so these are just some pictures of, you know, you're dealing with trash. This is actually a pretty good trash picture. I've seen many communities, there are mattresses, there's, um, you know, construction waste and vacant lots. The city of Philadelphia has 40,000 vacant lots. And sometimes there's just illegal dumping and it always, it does not go to the um, expensive neighborhoods. It goes to these neighborhoods that are already suffering from this disinvestment. Um, and years of redlining. So there's also in Philadelphia um, the challenge of a very aging um, green, uh, uh, aging infrastructure for the sewer system. And so on the right here, you see, um, you, you see, this is called CSO cast. And um, when the city of Philadelphia uh, when it rains, basically more than more than an inch, um, the sewage. We have a combined sewer system, so the sewer from your um, your house combines with the sewer from the street. And when it it when it over when it creates too much capacity, they let the raw sewage go out into the rivers. So this is a picture on the left is um, what happened during Hurricane Ida. And you can see, um, I mean, it actually doesn't look as bad as, it, as I know it is, but it, this, this is the Schuylkill and totally overflowed its banks and almost went onto the highway here. Um, this is, you can see there's like a uh, walkway that's so every, you know, basically it, that it, it, it really ended up all in the neighborhoods. And on the right, what you see is how much raw sewage ended up um, in, in the rivers. And so that perpetual challenge of, you know, how does the city, um, how's it gonna deal with climate when it can't even deal on a regular basis with its water um, and, and also thinking about um, clean, drinking water, but also sewage water. So these are some of the challenges of the of, of cities and also the struggle space. Um, sorry, let's go to the next one. Um, so Philadelphia also has this problem. They have 40,000 vacant lots um, and they do not have a community land trust. Uh, they don't, um, 
you know, so there's, sorry, I'm sorry to lose this. Oops, I go back here. So, so basically you have a city with numerous problems. I'm just trying to give you kind of um, a snapshot of it. Um, but uh, th these, I think, determine this idea of the struggle space. All right, so in terms of um, kind of how we got here, I've written a few books um, and thank you, Paul, for mentioning them. Um, these books, I think if you had to summarize these books, they're really me trying to explore, like, how did we get here? Um, so uh, the book Governing the Fragmented Metropolis is really me trying to understand, um, you know, why are our metropolitan regions so sprawling and how can they deal with, um, with uh, you know, affordable housing and education and land use and climate. Um, and, and really what I took away from that book was the system of governance is, is a mess, <laughs> is fragmented. Um, we, we don't have a way to coordinate. Um, we have some political institutions that are more effective than others. So I compared Boston, Denver, and Portland, but the, um, you know, the, every city is always trying to maximize this sort of growth machine mentality that prevents us from really reimagining kind of, uh, if you look at all of the metropolitan planning agencies, they all have really beautiful um, ideas of, oh yeah, we wanna have a sustainable, resilient region. But then when you actually look on, at how it's governed, um, everybody's, it's, everybody's kind of short-term thinking, fending for themselves. They're not, they're not um, coordinating at a level that would allow you to actually solve these large scale problems that are coming down the pike. So the book Governing the Fragmented Metropolis, I, I definitely saw some opportunities for hope um, and places that you could kind of tweak um, the relationships among different municipalities and try to get them to work together more. But I, I think in, in, when you look at the scale of the climate crisis coming down, it's, it's a little unnerving that we are woefully unprepared with our governance structure. Um, so, um, when I have the other book, The Growing a Sustainable City, looking at Philadelphia, I was really trying to ask, you know, you have 40,000 vacant lots in the city, and there was a lot of momentum to try to um, figure out, you know, how to reuse this land, and you could use it for all these positive things, um, and uh, grow food, but, and you could also, um, you know, like do a lot of community work and things like that. But the, but what I really took away from that book was that even where you have um, the desire for change in cities, you don't have the urgency, you don't have the political organizations to actually make it happen. And there's not a coordinated mechanism to kind of have it, have a coordinated discussion about like, yeah, we need um, urban farms, but we also need affordable housing and we also need parks and that, and we also need development. And one of the things that, you know, I, I saw from that research is like those conversations were very hard to have 
because of the siloed nature of, 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 of a municipal government. So at the regional scale, it's fragmented and siloed, but even at the city scale, um, we're looking at some of the same problems. So this governance um, kind of nut that we have to crack, I think is enormous. And, um, you know, so I, I saw there's like a lot of PhD students on here and graduate students. So I think there's plenty of work for you to do in the future. Um, I am in some ways hopeful that we are now at sort of a tipping point or a paradigm shift about that um, we are going to go from kind of being okay with this broken system of governance and the struggle space and sort of accepting this and that we might be in a place that we could kind of start to reimagine. Um, it, of course, it's also hard to do this reimagining when you're sort of paralyzed by fear and uncertainty. So, you know, there's, I feel like in the US, we can't decide um, how afraid we should be of climate. Um, I personally, um, I'm pretty afraid. I, I think the maps make me very clear that change is coming and it's coming in our lifetimes and our kids are gonna have to figure this out, grandkids. Um, you know, for many of our students, it's gonna be, um, they are gonna be professionals in who have to deal with enormous questions of um, urban relocation and urban heat islands. And um, so the, the need to both take it seriously and do the mitigation work and also think about the adaptation with an equity focus is, is critical. Um, so one of the things that I think is that you can't actually reimagine the future if you don't understand the past. Um, and this is where like my background as a history major comes here in, um, but you have to know how we got here and you have to see where we're now and how that's a result of the past. And then you wanna be able to imagine where are we going? Um, and that also means taking science very seriously and to imagine, um, you know, to think about agency that, you know, we can actually change the future if we understand it well enough and we're creative about um, changing, changing opportunities in the future. Um, so I will say that it is hard to reimagine. And, um, you know, sometimes when you are the person who keeps asking, well, should this really be is, is this really okay? You know, a lot of people kind of push back on you. Um, I've been often told that I'm unrealistic or what I'm talking about is impossible. Um, and so, you know, when I ask, well, why is this refinery still here in the middle of the city? People say, well, you know, we need gas and it's never gonna go away. Um, so I think that question of who gets to reimagine, how far we're willing to reimagine, these are really important questions. And, and I think back to this governance question is, you know, how does governance support this inclusive reimagining? Um, so I'm gonna start with a story um, just kind of to emphasize this point about the, the challenge of reimagining. Um, this is a picture of Philly. And um, I, back in um, 
in 2011 and 12, I was really interested um, in the fact that the, the um, refinery, which was this top, top um, emitter of toxins and CO2 and you know, burning fossil fuels, it, it, what, it was about to go bankrupt. And then the, the state, um, the federal government and the city rescued this refinery. Um, I live pretty close to this refinery, uh, refinery and I had received a postcard when I first moved to Philadelphia that I should huddle in some corner of my basement um, if I heard some sirens. So I had, from the very first time of kind of my introduction to Philly was, um, I started kind of seeing this, the refinery all in everything, you know, like, oh, there's air pollution. Well, what's the role of the refinery? And I was shocked that anybody would want to bring this refinery back. And, and especially at this very same time that the city was pushing to be the greenest city in America. Um, so uh, this was this idea that Philadelphia would be the new Petro Metro. Um, and um, this was actually a report that came out in uh, 2015. It was called Pipeline for Growth. And I went to numerous uh, meetings with uh, people in Philadelphia um, talking to me about the, the possibility that would come from fracking and the, um, we are going to be um, you know, the new economy. So you could really see in this conversation that this the, the, the value system of like growth above all else was driving the, the visioning for the city. Um, and here's where I want to push on this idea of reimagining, because I think a lot of reimagining happens all the time. Um, but there's competing who gets to reimagine is really important because in 2015, the Pipeline for Growth report came out, and this is the Council for Growth, Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, Select Greater Philadelphia. Um, they were super excited about the Marcella Shale, um, and you know, Philly would have this new economy. And at the very same time that this came out, Philadelphia is also imagining another future, which is a climate-challenged future of flooding. Um, and the irony here is that when you look at where the refinery is and where the flooding is, they're in the exact same place. So I spend a lot of time as an academic asking questions of what is going on here and how are we actually, how are we squaring the, this contradiction? This is, to me, I, I, I felt like this was sort of insanity and it made uh, it, I, I could not understand how to reckon with these two visions that seem to just not be talking to each other at any point. Um, it's interesting to see because in 2015, I really felt like I was playing the role of the environmentalist at meetings. And I would bring up this, the, at meetings um, about regional planning meetings, I would suggest that this refinery was the wrong direction. Um, and I'd really be pushed aside like, well, we're always gonna have a refinery. 
Um, and so I was thinking about this idea of this missing, something is missing from our imagination, this reimagining. Um, so, you know, this, my students actually made this. Um, this is, I had many of my students involved in trying to understand this energy hub idea and how it contradicted. Um, so when you're thinking about that who is missing, um, we were start, starting to try to make this visible with maps. Um, and actually on the right here, this is a map that one of my students made about the environmental justice communities and the um, oil trains that were running through the city. Um, there had been a huge explosion in Canada. And what, what we had found with these oil trains is that when they explode, they're nearly impossible to put out and they have a very large blast zone. Um, so these environmental groups across the state of Pennsylvania started pushing for much more regulations um, with what we were calling the bomb trains. And at the time people kept thinking, saying, well, you know, I'm, I don't think it's really gonna happen. Um, but then we had a number of incidences where trains were sort of dangling off of, um, off of uh, bridges and there were some near, real near misses on the train. So people started to wake up a little to that. And in 2014, um, the, the city council actually said, you know, actually we are worried about this. Um, so you started to see some breaks in the kind of energy hub, um, the, the, the narrative about the energy hub. Um, you also saw at a national level that the, the fracking future of, um, you know, fracking being this transition fuel that is great, um, really starting to be challenged as well. Um, so in Philly, the, um, the people who were really missing from this reimagining were these organizers. Um, and, and one thing that has been really exciting to, exciting to see in Philly is, um, the fact that there's this is Green Justice Philly and later Philly Thrive have been really active in Philly against um, the refinery and pushing for a Green New Deal approach to um, economic development in the city. So they've been arguing that the sort of um, jobs versus the environment narrative is not, um, it is A, not where we want to be, and it's not real. So that there, we don't need to just protecting the environment doesn't necessarily mean that we can give up jobs. So arguing that the transition will create a different set of jobs. Um, and we need to think about, about that it's a much more inclusive economy that's not um, sacrificing many of our residents. Um, so I, I would say, I, I hate to be um, excited about this, but I no one was killed. Um, on June 21st, 2019, the refinery exploded and, um, and that was the end of the refinery um, and the beginning of a new reimagining. Um, I honestly am somewhat amazed that it's closed. Um, if you had listened to some of the things that people said to me in the back when I would talk about the refinery, um, you would understand why this picture of the future of Philadelphia is, this was actually in the Philadelphia Inquirer this week. And this picture, 
is amazing to me because there were so many times where people just treated me like my image of the future was crazy. And this picture is way more out there than the image. I just wanted to shut it down, <laughs> you know? So, so I raised that here as a way to think about um, the power of ideas and, you know, it, it, it was um, the actual explosion, I would argue, that shut it down. But there were many people pushing to be heard that their vision was not in the initial um, framing of this energy hub. Um, so I give you that example because I think climate change planning um, needs to be inclusive and it needs to acknowledge um, existing conditions, environmental justice, the struggle space. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities for, um, for exciting ways to connect, um, to connect climate investment and a, a dealing with the future with our meeting our current concerns. And I think that um, this, this kind of framing for me comes out of, I come from a background of um, thinking about planning really as um, a negotiation. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I am always trying to understand is like, what does this person really need? What does this community need? Uh, and I think with climate, you realize that a lot of the things that the community really needs for climate are the same things that they need to be able to protect themselves today and to meet their current needs now. And we need to figure out a way to link that if we're going to reimagine the sustainable communities. Um, so now I'm going to turn to heat in Philadelphia. And if you look at um, uh, if you look at the red lining maps, you'll see that they very much correspond with the urban heat island um, uh, in the, it, that we're seeing in Philadelphia already, and also that we know will be a much um, larger problem in the future. So parts of the city are 22 degrees hotter than other parts of the city because they have um, that they do not have as much tree canopy, um, they may not have parks. Um, and these are also the same parts of the city that were disinvested. And many of the people um, are housing insecure where they um, may have tangled title or they um, may be renters at, or they may um, not have the capital to do home improvements or to buy air conditioning. And so you're dealing with a part of the city that is um, already has the disinvested um, structure. And on top of that, you're putting um, heat. And um, I, I actually, um, I, I, this summer I was on the news because I, I think the, uh, the, the heat issue in Philadelphia is intense and it needs to be at the forefront of, um, it's an environmental justice, environmental racism issue. And we need to figure out how to um, use the resources that we have in the city of Philadelphia, particularly around climate 
to ensure that neighborhoods are able to adapt. Um, and at the very least at the beginning, right in, uh, today, we need to figure out how to get everybody air conditioning. And then longer term, we need to figure out how to use investments in green stormwater and um, parks and um, other you know, schools um, across the city. So, uh, sorry, my computer is stalled. Uh, sorry, this is this is um, the city. The good news is the city of Philadelphia is very much aware of uh, urban heat island um, challenges, and they have made this um, heat vulnerability index um, and started to prioritize investments. Um, and the other thing that we also see is that urban heat maps very closely with um, some of the gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. So in terms of um, connecting with the struggle space, we want to make sure that um, we are uh, mindful of people's current concerns in their neighborhood. Um, so when we start to reimagine how we deal with urban heat, we can start to be more creative. Um, and I think that's one thing that Stephen and I um, really tried to do in the book is to identify these places across the world where people have been able to um, take a problem and then to think creatively about a solution that meets multiple benefits at once. Um, and so I love this is a spray park. Um, the city has invested in these um, sprinklers at rec centers. And, you know, they had the rec centers, so they used it, they used investments to improve these areas and also, in many cases, to put um, impervious pavement and other green stormwater infrastructure um, amenities here. So they're capturing rainwater, they're providing um, recreation, they're also cooling people. Um, and, and this also gets back to that other part of like making cities fun, right? If, if you're a city, if you live in a city and you don't have a car and you're not going to the Grand Canyon, you know, these, we want the city to be able to provide you and your family with recreation um, and protection. So um, we know that there are a lot of benefits of um, bringing nature back to cities. And the city of Philadelphia has been very much at the, a leader in the green stormwater um, movement. And, and so if you read about um, green stormwater, you'll always see the Green City um, Clean Waters Plan in Philly. And this is a picture just showing you all the sort of benefits that come and, uh, from trees. Um, and I really like this picture because it brings together um, this much more intersectional kind of comprehensive way of thinking about both problems and also solutions. Um, so when we start to think of a tree as doing a lot of work for us, then we can start to think about which neighborhood needs what kind of work um, and which neighborhood needs this type of investment. Um, the big challenge in Philly is that a lot of people really um, often push back on trees. And sometimes there's this narrative like low-income neighborhoods don't want trees. Um, and here you can see this, um, they're doing a survey in Philadelphia about do you love trees or hate your trees? Um, but the truth is that um, it, it is not really about hating trees. It's mostly about hating what trees do to your sidewalk and your sewer line and 
and your cars and liability and maintenance. And increasingly in Philly, there's also real concern that trees are associated with raising property values. And this is a city where we have been um, witnessing a lot of gentrification. So, um, you know, one of the things that I want to argue, and I'll show you in a second of some of the ways that we're doing this is that we need to think more, um, we need to think about trees and housing and uh, access to capital and community land trusts and working with community groups. Um, and we need to figure out um, trees are not, um, trees themselves are not gentrifying people. Um, trees are a part of a, of a process of change in the neighborhood. And for the most part, that could be good change unless it, it kicks people out of their neighborhoods. So we need to figure out how do we stabilize communities so that they can stay, right? And so making sure there's rent regulations um, and, you know, and dealing with a lot of the other structural issues. Um, so rather than kind of saying it's all about the tree, thinking more holistically about what is actually happening in these communities. And if we get out of our siloed thinking, could we solve these problems? So it's reimagining the problem and um, the framing of the problem is really important. Um, we can also reimagine um, the way that we connect our energy um, transition to jobs and we can leverage um, community organizations. We can partner with uh, universities, hospitals, um, and we can address some of the energy affordability and security issues um, together. So um, what I think is hard is that sometimes it's very hard to see these sort of elegant solutions that solve many things at once because everyone is working in their own bucket. So in the city of Philadelphia, we have the water department, they are working separately from housing. Um, so when you are concerned as a community member that about green gentrification, you tend to talk with the water department, but really you need a process to be able to talk to the water department and to the um, and to people who deal with housing and um, rent protections. Um, so, so one of the things that we are arguing for and working to develop it, are these more intersectional um, and co community informed policy tools and processes. And, and here, this kind of brings me back to that missing reimagination. One of the things that's very clear on it's very clear to me is that um, we have a system of governance that for too long has just thought it's normal for certain communities to be excluded. It's okay for them to be dumped on. It's, and then we don't engage them in the sort of visioning themselves of their community. So the, one of the things that we really wanna do is try to make sure that community members have a way um, to be engaged in the process of identifying what they want in their community. Um, so we've developed, this is Megan Heckard as um, a faculty member at Westchester. 
Um, she and I have been working for a number of years on a green stormwater equity index. Um, and the goal here is, you know, if the city is trying to do um, green stormwater all across the city in this decentralized strategy, how do we um, make sure that this investment it, it is guided by equity? Um, and what does that mean? And, and I think that's really important because a lot of people always say, oh, well, equity, equity, but you have to really define um, what you mean by that. Um, and the, one of the reasons that Megan and I initially started doing this research was that we saw all these benefits of greening. Um, and then, but then we saw that initially the city had, um, they were really, pushing for these public-private partnerships on green stormwater infrastructure. So you could kind of only get green infrastructure if you um, had the capacity to cost share and work with the city. And we, we started to realize that um, there were a lot of communities that probably needed green stormwater um, the most um, who might not be involved in these conversations and they might be excluded from participating because of their capacity. Um, so our argument was that, you know, if, if green infrastructure does provide all these benefits and particularly with urban heat, we need to figure out a way to prioritize um, who gets these benefits. And I think this, this conversation is actually really important right now when we're thinking about um, the Biden administration's focus on infrastructure, you know, how do we decide who gets what and who needs what? Um, and how do we link this to um, kind of more holistic thinking about uh, neighborhoods? So, oops, sorry, my computer is a little slow here. Um, this is the, the city's kind of, let's just put green stormwater everywhere. Um, we were asking the question of what would an equitable distribution look like. Um, we were also wondering, you know, and this is part of longer term research is, you know, how do we include this in larger conversations about some of the neighborhoods concerned about affordable housing, green gentrification. Um, so the, the model that we created is built off of this kind of logic that it says, given that the water department is spending money um, on green infrastructure and is in incentivizing this insulation often through these public-private partnerships. Um, how do we make sure that it's equitable and it really doesn't exacerbate inequalities and actually can help um, address them? Um, so this was, uh, we initially did this work um, many years ago and we used to talk about um, we used to show like equity and the boxes and tell people, you know, if to be equitable, you have to give somebody more. I think at this point, um, the concept of equity is pretty clear to people. Um, so what we were really looking for are which communities, um, kind of, you know, they don't have tree canopy. They have a lot of renters. Um, they may have been redlined, they um, have uh, older people, younger people, they have, um, you know, maybe they don't have uh, access to green space or they, the, um, they might not have as many amenities as other communities. So could green infrastructure be reimagined to solve some of those problems for them? Um, 
so as part of the the um, green infrastructure equity index, we were also thinking about the way that urban form really is important. Um, and you know, the city kind of had a view that it was just green infrastructure could go anywhere. And um, one of the things that we thought is that green infrastructure is should likely be different in every part of the the city based on the typology and also based on what residents wanted in their neighborhood. Um, and sorry, uh, sorry, I'm going in the wrong direction here. Um, so this is the equity index and you can see that we created using a numerous uh, variables and I'm not gonna go into all of it, but what you can see is the areas that are in black are the areas that we've identified based on this initial, we, we worked with community groups, but um, based on those conversations with the community groups and um, uh, like we basically uh, developed this index identifying the, the neighborhoods that really needed green stormwater the most according to this criteria. Now, the thing that's important here to remember is um, this is really a framework for thinking about it uh, and for working with community members. And so we developed this as a way um, to, as really an ongoing conversation with residents about what was important to them and what they wanted to see in their communities. And we've uh, taken the larger idea of the equity index and um, in later work and some work we're doing now, we've tried to think about um, does green infrastructure, um, should it be classified into different types of need? Um, so we thought about environmental need. So in what ways could green infrastructure help you address issues of traffic, pervious surfaces, air pollution? In what ways could green infrastructure help you um, get more parks or trees or tree canopy? And in what ways could it address the sort of um, economic um, disadvantage that, so these are some of the different categories um, that we were looking at in the equity index. And then across, we could take the index and rather than just having the one index that shows um, you know, which part of the neighborhood needs green infrastructure, we could start to think more strategically about um, what kind of need every part of the neighborhood has. And this is one neighborhood and you can see um, this, that there's different, even with it, when you get to the smaller scale, there's different need um, in different neighborhoods. And um, the, the, the idea for this is that when you start to work with community members and identify the needs that kind of show up on when you're using large scale data, then we can bring it down to the neighborhood level and we can identify places where they can, we can work with neighbors to that, where they do the reimagining of, okay, you know, you have your neighborhood really needs this type of investment. Where do you want it? What do you want it to look like? And so here is a picture of that, you know, when we're drilling down to the neighborhood level, now we're at, um, now we're in, in Google Street View looking at, there's some abandoned spaces. And I, here's where I think it brings us back to the reimagining. These are, these, the, the, each one of these parcels could be used in many different ways. And we can prioritize, do we want affordable housing? 
Do we want um, a park? Uh, do what is important to this community? And so that is what we're hoping that we can do with this index is to build this conversation about how to use investments that are um, the water department's bringing and the housing department is bringing. And so, but how do we use um, the, how do we use those investments to address current need and, and anticipated need also? So if you look at a map of the neighborhood, you can see the different types of need, and then we can identify neighbors. Um, what, we can see that there's some schools um, might be some real opportunities for um, investment, particularly in um, fixing playgrounds um, and providing other benefits, uh, educational benefits to students as well. Um, so uh, we are hoping to, well, not even just hoping, but we were awarded uh, an NSF um, uh, Smart and Connected Communities pilot uh, project funding to build this equity index and add these other variables and think much more strategically about how do we engage residents in this reimagining about climate and thinking about communities' desire um, and their needs. And so this is a project that we will um, be working with community residents in North Philly um, in starting in January. We've already um, done a lot of work meeting um, with residents over the years. And uh, particularly during COVID, we had what we called the, um, we called it the breakfast club where on Zoom, we were able to meet with community members um, pretty much every Friday and talk with them about their concerns about gentrification, disinvestment, um, yeah, affordable housing and planning issues. Um, and so there's been a lot of momentum um, in really kind of getting community members interested in um, this work and seeing this work as important to kind of informing a larger conversation about climate resilience. Um, so, I, you know, I put this picture here. This is uh, the view from my train ride. It's often for many years, this was just uh, a, a not a very attractive um, park and it was sort of not taken care of. But um, we, you know, see the this kind of investment um, can solve multiple um, the, multiple problems at once, um, and but it requires a whole new. And this gets me back to the beginning of the talk of thinking about governance. We have to figure out ways that we can get um, government officials to see their work in collaboration with communities and also with other agencies. Um, and this means identifying the co-benefits of their work. Um, this also probably means figuring out um, different ways to share costs and to think strategically about um, long-term maintenance and um, other challenges that come when you um, make investments in communities. Um, but there's, if we think about climate investments as community amenities, it's a reframing, but I think it's an important one. Um, so there's also a lot of opportunities to reimagine. Um, in Philly, I keep reimagining this community land trust that allows us to promote urban agriculture and that also does affordable housing. Um, 
one of the things that I have been arguing, and I think um, is you'll see in this book, is that we really need to create the urgency for this kind of change. Um, so I um, have gone from being an academic who hides and tries to buy up all the copies of her book and not let anyone read it um, to someone who is writing articles about how Philly needs to actually get air conditioning to people and um, figure out how to deal with the um, hot weather crisis. And I am you'll find me on the radio talking about air pollution and pushing people um, to, to actually take this seriously. We're also working with community groups um, to visualize their experience in the city. Um, and we've made some films and some story maps. So this is, we, we started this project, Our City, Our, our Story, Our Futures. Um, and so working on the, really on this co-creation, I think that this is actually a big challenge for academics is to try to um, move beyond the, I'm studying you to actually, I'm with you pushing. And, you know, and I've done a lot of um, collaboration with uh, Russell Zerbo from the Clean Air Council. Um, and I've tried to figure out how to be really an honest partner with them. Um, so this is, you know, again, this is open access, trying to get people to say, hey, urban ag, it's cool, but you got to do it more. It, it's not just about gardens. It's about green space, affordable housing, the long-term um, resiliency and kind of sustainability. And these are systems that need to work together. Um, you know, here's another policy paper we've pushed for, you know, can we use this equity index to promote environmental justice and beat pandemics, you know? So these, a lot of these tools, um, they can be applied in, they, they can be applied in different ways. Um, and so one of the things that we realized during the pandemic was like all of the things that we had already identified as the, um, as kind of, the struggle space and the challenges, you know, we already had the tools to see these things. And if now you're focusing on pandemics, we could use similar tools to identify vulnerability of communities, depending on what, you know, depending on how we saw the problem. Um, so uh, we were really pushing on that. And we've been doing in Philly this kind of, um, this idea of this more inclusivity and, and a lot of the things that I've been talking about today. So um, I, here I wanna end with, this is, um, this is after Hurricane Ida and this is actually a highway. Um, this is um, 676 through the middle of Philadelphia. It basically turned into a canal. Um, people were asking for boats and <laughs> on uh, Facebook marketplace and, they, and, and then a lot of people looked at this and they said, oh, it's, uh, it looks really nice. You know, maybe this is a new, maybe this is a new vision for the city of Philadelphia. Um, so, so this idea of who does the reimagining, it's clear that we need to figure out a way to get everybody um, to be able to reimagine in the conversation and make it a much more inclusive and equitable. And we, and, and nature is, is part of this conversation. Sometimes nature is going to reimagine for us. Um, so, 
you know, I'm going to keep writing my articles and hoping people listen and they don't think I'm crazy when I try to question whether or not we should have a refinery in the middle of a huge city with, um, air, with air pollution. And, um, and meanwhile, um, nature will do its work. So um, thank you for your time. And if anyone wants to get in touch or find out more, uh, this is my contact info. So thank you. Thank you so much, Tina, for that very interesting and provocative conversation uh, to talk with us. Now it's time to turn to the Q&A section of our evening. And I want to remind you that the way to do that is to use the chat function of Zoom. Just type your questions into the chat box and I will ask them of Professor Roseanne. We've already got a bunch, so I will start. Uh, and a couple of them are lengthy. Um, what if the issue is the state and city itself? Everything you're saying makes me think it's certain people or departments in power shutting out those whose voices are the most important. Ruth Wilson Gilmore makes the assertion that the state is multiple and contradictory. Do you see a future where those who aren't listened to can use certain parts of the state or the city as a means of wrenching power away and self-determining their own futures? Is there a future where planning or planners can align themselves against the city and the state as enablers of the community? I feel like that came from someone in our department. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's Bellamy. one of our students. It's, it's, it's Bellamy. <laughs> okay, so great. Hi, Bellamy. Um, that, I mean, that is an enormous question that in... Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not going to be able to give you the right answer to that, but I will say that um, I think a lot of these relationships are really up in the air. You know, planners right now are going through a total crisis of identity, like what is their role and have we been... Um, you know, have we been enabling this discrimination? And it's clear, it's clear they have, right? So there, I mean, there are a lot of people who are in those positions now who are trying to figure out how to do good work. Um, I think they need to kind of scream that they can't do the work because they're in their little buckets and they can't they you can't solve large scale problems from from these kind of everybody hanging out in their isolated place we need to figure out new systems um i'm not talking about like big draconian approaches but they we need some kind of um coordinated approach to these policy problems um yeah, I mean, I think there's also gonna be a role for social movements to push hard on um, government officials to do things differently. This is not okay. Um, and we need them to hear that again and again. And we also need to change what the people in government look like. It, it can't, it, you know, the, there shouldn't be rooms I've been in many rooms in Philadelphia where um, the policymakers are all white and the city is not. So there's obviously, a, you know, a huge um, equity 
um, inclusion, diversity challenge that's going to happen professionally. Uh, so um, it's a great question, Bellamy. I, I wish I had the answer. So um, I know you're working on your PhD, so <laughs> you can help me. Uh, so the next question, short of an explosion, how can urban land containing uh, principal polluters and carbon emitters be put to better community-friendly use? Regardless of what we are, what we as an inclusive community can imagine, developers invest for profit. Local government budgets are limited, so perhaps the Fed needs to pay fossil operations to close rather than rescue them. Yeah, that you guys are tough in these questions. Um, I mean, I guess it's a good question. It's like a good history question. Like, had it not exploded what would have happened? Would it ever, would, would like Philly thrive and all of these organizations be, have been so kind of in your face about fracking and, you know, environmental justice and environmental racism that like, it would have been an embarrassment to these oil companies that they would have pulled back and said, you know, it's not worth it to us. I, I mean, I think, um, so that's a question, I, I mean, which we'll never really know the answer to. So, but um, one of the things that I initially, um, it, it was actually a paper that I never got published, um, but it sort of drove me to, to do other research. I, I had done a paper that was trying to figure out like why Chicago had been able to shut the coal power power the power plants in Chicago had shut down but Philly had reopened the refinery and the and the finding that I had there was that a lot of it also depended on um, federal energy structures so I think the you know the as we transition away from fossil fuels we are going to see fewer of the fewer of of these um facilities staying online, I think we are going to have a big cleanup problem. But so, you know, the federal federal um, kind of policy is definitely going to change the landscape of the fossil fuel industry, which will change urban land all across the country. I mean, every city, I can't really think of a city that doesn't have one of these problems of a big polluting fossil fuel infrastructure. So you talked about green gentrification when working with adding green space to lower income neighborhoods. How does adding green space lead to gentrification and how do we avoid it? Well, I, I'm of the opinion that um, gentrification is like a, a is a pretty complicated process. And the, that um, what happens is that we, um, we value as we we value places that are, you know, have trees, are shaded, have amenities. So there are many places in the city that don't have those amenities because they've been redlined and environmental racism. So the challenge, and I think it's a it's a it's a really and one hand is very tough, and the other hand, I feel like it's not. So the challenge is we want to improve these neighborhoods and we want to bring the wealth back to neighborhoods, but we don't want to do that in a way that that like just brings in a whole bunch of other people who get to live in the with a nice park in the shade. 
we want to figure out a way to do to that people get to stay in these neighborhoods that they have been holding the fort down for generations. Um, I think we do that through affordable housing. Um, and I think we have um, we have the potential to be able to do that. Um, I can think in, in Boston, the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative with their community land trust has done some amazing work. Um, the, you know, so one of the things we need is to, um, we need to figure out how to get the city to um, prioritize uh, like affordable housing, green space, and not just, um, you know, let's give all the land to the developers, um, which is, so right now the model is like the, the water department's greening at the same time that the city is kind of, you know, is letting developers roll. Um, so we need to figure out how to kind of, if we know we're going to green and improve neighborhoods, how do we, before that happens, make sure affordable housing gets put in. Um, and, and that also means that we need like some really forward thinkers, um, people who are able to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, this next question I think is related to what you were just saying. Urban land is highly marketable is a highly marketable commodity under prevailing power structures and deep rooted economic interests. How do you convince local and state governments to use it for people and not for profit? This is a great question. Um, oh, well, I mean, I do think with I do think we are going to have some serious conversations around climate. Um, about how we fund cities. The idea that we fund cities with property taxes, you know, if you want to understand urban sprawl in the United States of America, that it is, it's about financing, right? So we've created a whole, we've created um, a whole group of people in city government who view land as a way to just create revenue rather than viewing land as a way of creating spaces and places that people want to live in. Um, and so I think that, that we, you know, we're going to have some massive conversations in with the climate, <laughs> with, the, the, with climate change about the urban growth machine model, because we're going to have also a lot of places that are going to be underwater um, and they're not going to be able to be generating the same kind of, um, the same kind of revenue. So, you know, do I have the answer for that? No, I do not. Is that an enormous question that like, if you wanted to solve all these problems, you were gonna have to go there? Yes, yes, definitely. It's like, if we, we have to figure out, we have to be more honest about how, like what, what is driving us to make these terrible decisions? And, it, and, it, and the growth machine is, is, a, is key. The next question might be related to something you just said as well. While much of your talk looks at how to transform existing settled areas to be more resilient, this questioner, Fletcher, is wondering if you have thoughts on how to en engage in reimagining with communities that will be erased by climate change. In Philadelphia, for example, Eastwick is predicted to be gone within 20 years. But this is true in many cities. The water will come and there will be local refugees. So do you have thoughts about how we think about imagining that, the fact that some communities will need to be elsewhere? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, Fletch, and I think it's very, um, I mean, it's really devastating for communities to say to them, you know, everything that's important to you is going to be gone. And we, but how do we, um, you know, I think, how do we, how do we have that conversation? I think part of the issue right now is like, there's so much distrust of those communities. Those are the same environmental justice communities that have been, um, they've, they've borne the brunt of, um, you know, of just mistreatment and exclusion and environmental racism again and again. So like, why are they going to trust the government when the government comes and says to them, hey, you got to move, you know, and, and so I think um, those conversations are, are, are they are going to need a whole new, um, a new framework for, you know, like how we have community conversations about the future. I, I, I don't know, um, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is to be honest, like it, but I, but I know that if, unless you figure out how to include people in the conversation and to build trust that you are not going to be able to have that conversation with them. So that's, you know, that we really need to, to figure out a way to trust people. And, and, and then we also have to give them, reimagine a place that people go that is, that's good, you know? So like, how do we build space for those people in other communities that isn't just taking them from one undesirable place to, an, or in, and to another, you know? And so uh, it's an enormous question. I, I don't know the answer. I think that's very clear that, that it's, it's huge. So the next question is from Lynn Peterson, who is the uh, president of the Oregon Metro Council. And I know, as you know, from your, uh, that you, your first book, you know that Oregon Metro has been on the cutting edge of, uh, of all the issues you've brought up. So here's the question. While we have another nine to 12 months to make progress on the issues of the day, the Oregon Metro Council is looking to update their 50-year plan from 2040 to 2070. Uh, can you give any advice in that effort? Well, I guess, um, I mean, first of all, I'm excited that you came to my talk. So that's awesome. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, it's interesting because when you say 2050 and then 2070, it's like 2050, you can kind of pretend maybe climate's not that bad, but 2070, like you really can't anymore. So I think that that's, that's like the first thing is that you've now jumped the, uh, you, you've, you can't really hedge your bets on the, on the climate aspects. That's one. I think the other thing is, um, you know, did, is going back and making sure that, um, that, you know, people were included earlier on, you know, I, I, I mean, Portland does a better job than other places of this. So I think you have that going for you because, you know, you do have these public conversations, but I think if there's a way to engage, um, citizens in this imagining 
and the reimagining and thinking of it as, as not just scary, but actually as exciting and there's some possibilities, maybe that's a way forward. Um, but I also do think this idea of the struggle space could also be something important. You being able to show people that your 2070 plan is just not some crazy out there long-term thing, but it's actually about them now and it's informed by them now and it'll help improve their lives and their kids' lives. Um, that's probably another way forward. So um, good luck. Uh, it's, I think it's amazing that you're, you guys are doing that kind of work with communities. Um, and, you know, and I know that Portland has been trying to do a lot more on equity and I commend you guys on that. Next question. Uh, are there any model examples where city funded green infrastructure has had meaningful success that is that has resulted in more equitable, more equitability and less gentrification? And if yes, what are some of the elements of, of such a program, of such an example? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of more recent focus on like um, development without displacement. And I, I can't say that like, oh, this city is awesome at this. And, you know, I, I don't think there's like one place that has this right. Um, but I, I do think that, that the, the, the like special sauce of not gentrifying places is, um, going is like really listening to communities about their concerns and figuring out a way to connect that with different city agencies. Um, one of the things that I've been super frustrated with in different conversations with city officials is you know sometimes when people say well oh they don't like trees you know and I just I think like oh wow you really are not talking to people because it's not that they don't like trees you know they it's like we need context and we need to figure out so I think the places that are having those public conversations maybe this gets back to the other the other um the other question uh, from Portland Metro is like the, the contextualizing, the public conversations, the, the showing that like greening is A, necessary for to deal with climate resilience and B, like we actually do care that you get to stay here and we're going to address those concerns, you know, so instead of you know, instead of dismissing them, we are going to work collaboratively. So yeah, I, I think the good news is that like, you know, there's so many um, new conversations post, uh, you know, like COVID, Black Lives Matter, like that about the sort of reimagining of cities and doing things differently. I don't see the like on the ground thing yet, but I feel like it's coming. Um, so like maybe, um, I'll, if you check back a few years from now, I'll have the great example. But in the meantime, I think that people, um, I think it's like the awareness that like you can't just green because, you know, people will spend more money to live in green areas. And, you know, a lot of wealthy people are coming back to the city. And so unless we figure out how to protect people, you know, we are just going to be pushing um, particularly black and brown people out of their homes. 
Next question, as cities adopt more eco-friendly solutions, what sorts of employment opportunities would be made available? Uh, how do these, how can these green public works projects replace the antiquated dirty jobs such as coal refining? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, um, uh, the dirty job question, and that was part of, you know, initially when I, when I sort of came out against the refinery a long time ago, um, that, you know, people said, oh, but these are good jobs, um, you know, and my pushback was, well, these are, these are, you know, these are not, these are actually not good jobs, because yes, they pay you, but they have all these other um, impacts. Um, I, I think there's a lot of um, excitement about green jobs and possibility for solar installation and maintenance of green stormwater. Um, and, you know, these are, I think there's a lot of jobs that are, are going to require rebuilding cities in a different way. I mean, when I think about the amount of infrastructure money that like hopefully comes down to address climate change, there's so much work to be done. It's amazing, you know? So I feel like um, there are going to be a lot of jobs and we just have to figure out a way to make those jobs good jobs. Um, and, and we need to figure out, like from an educational perspective, we need to figure out how to train people for those jobs and make sure that those jobs go to people from the neighborhood, um, you know, that maybe they, you don't need a college education to get all these jobs. So I think it, trying to figure out how to open the opportunities up um, is really important but there's there's so much like weatherization um home repairs and solar panels and parks to be built and you know just basic like pipes to be pulled up and replaced and new systems i mean there's i, I think that's actually really exciting i'm I, I um i'm kind of optimistic that that you know if if we if we kind of divorce ourselves from this like the only good job is a dirty job or, you know, then, then we can move forward. But I think partially we, we kind of need to like let go of the fossil fuel industry and we just can't do it yet. <laughs> when you were discussing urban heat islands, you pointed to the similarities between the map of gun violence and the map of heat levels. Have there been any, have there been any studies uh, about the effects of diminishing heat islands and levels of violence that could help support this initiative, this, these kind of efforts? Well, that's a great question. There have been a lot of studies about the relationship between heat and gun violence. I don't know if we've take, I don't know if we've fixed the urban heat islands enough to do the research that you would need to answer that question. Um, I think that would be like five years from now, that might be an amazing research question. And you could build, you could um, try to figure out, you know, like, are these interventions contributing to the reduction in gun violence? And, and in what ways are they doing it? Um, you know, and what are the causes of, you know, in what ways is heat creating gun, like contributing to gun violence? Um, so, so it's a it's a really fantastic question. I think it's that's the kind of 
thinking that we need to be able to make these arguments. So we don't have, and this goes back to the sort of other, I think a lot of these things are sort of unproven um, at this point because we're in that innovation era where we're kind of rethinking how to do it. And, but we, we don't necessarily have all the data points to say it definitely works, you know, X number of trees equals X number of reduction in gun violence. We, I can't do that. But, you know, longer term, we could, we could think about how to, how to ask that question. So you spoke uh, early in the talk about the importance of understanding how we got here. Do you have any hit, uh, recommendations of books that help us understand how we got here? Well, I, I do in my class. So some of the people in here have taken my public policy class. I have a few books that I always, um, uh, we read uh, The Color of Law um, by Richard Rothstein. I think that's a really important book just to deal with the sort of racial segregation. Um, so that is one of them. I'm trying to remember all the other books. Someone in my class probably can tell me what it was, what they are. Um, Another book I, I do also, um, I, I, you know, I think it's a really good book is uh, by Mona Hannah Atisha, I'm not sure how to say, and from Detroit. And she's written a book about the Flint, Michigan um, story. Um, that I, I think she does a really beautiful job. She's a, a doctor who um, really de dealt with lead poisoning in Flint, Michigan. Um, and so really important book there. I was, I'm thinking who else is, I don't know, someone in the chat can like put my other, some of the other books that, that they, that we had. I'm trying to think of other. Well, while we're, really while we're waiting, I have another question for you. Okay, um, go for it. As we work to prevent climate change, how do we adapt neighborhoods to the current climate change? Like how the people of Philadelphia turned a flooded highway into a canal? Well, I, they didn't turn it into a canal. They, they, it, it, I was sort of joking about the boats. Um, it really became a canal. <laughs> um, so in terms of how do we adapt now, I think we, um, we admit that, um, that it's hotter and that there's certain people. And, and so, so like, for instance, in Philadelphia, it's flooding, we know that. So like, you know, which neighborhoods are getting flooded? How do we, you know, either deal with uh, fixing their basements or getting those neighborhoods more green stormwater or, um, you know, like some kind of financing program to make sure that they can deal with the flooding and the kind of all these other problems that come with flooding like mold and, um, you know, home repairs and stuff. But then the other issue is the urban heat island is making sure that people have air conditioning. Um, I'm, I'm always surprised that um, some cities have actually started to mandate that, you know, you can't rent an apartment to someone without air conditioning. That seems pretty basic. Um, most cities don't do that. Uh, so I think that's, that's key. The other issue um, in Philadelphia is our public schools do not have air conditioning. Um, so, you know, like, I mean, some do, but the majority of them don't. So figuring out, um, you know, some, some of these investments that like are really critical for kids to be able to go to school and have, and, you know, using these facilities as, as real backups, um, are super important. 
So yeah, I don't, I think you have to like meet people where they are and we need to go talk to people about their experience in neighborhoods. And that means, um, you know, we, it's gonna be some uncomfortable conversations because a lot of people in neighborhoods are really distrustful of academics and of um, policymakers and they, you know, they feel like no one's listening to them, but we need to go talk with people and find out what they need now to deal with some of these things. Cause it's not now some kind of long-term thing. It's like right now, you know, it's, you're, you can't sleep and you know, you're having people die during, um, during heat emergencies. So like, how do we, how do we admit that we're having these problems and figure out how to get those resources to people? Um, so yes, that's what I would do. So um, here's a here's a really simple question. Um, when does your book come out and how do you order it? Um, the book, it comes out on December 7th. Um, it's on uh, University of California Press has the book. Um, I don't know, go to your local, your favorite local bookstore or you could order online from them. And um, yeah, so uh, that's like, you know, good old capitalism will get you the book. Um, we did try to make it affordable. Um, and that was actually one of the things that Stephen and I really fought for is like, we did not want to have a $60 book. Um, so hopefully it will be more accessible to you. Um, but yes, please reach out if you have any questions or you want to talk. Um, I really appreciate all of you spending your evening with me. So Tina, we've come to the end of the questions that we've had, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, to share your ideas about uh, the futures that we might imagine. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. So, good night. For more information on other upcoming events sponsored by the Oregon Humanities Center, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our public events and research programs, visit ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks again for watching.